0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, December the 9th, 2022. Um. few weeks ago we had a really interesting show with two Egyptologists archaeologists at Yale University Colleen and John Darnell they have a best-selling new book out Egypt's golden couple when uh, Akhenaten and Nefertiti were gods on earth. Um, Akhenaten was a an Egyptian king and his wife uh, Nefertiti uh, remarkable characters we have a lot, of, um, a lot of remnants of them, of images and, and, um, and, uh, and other paraphernalia. Uh, and they're most famous as the parents of Tutankhamun. We all know, of course, Tutankhamun. We're going to be talking about Tutankhamen today, but in an interesting context, uh, a few weeks ago, we also did a show with an American called Hopewood Dupree, um, who bought an English castle and wrote a book about it, another best-selling book, Downton Shabby, One America's Ultimate DIY Adventure, Restoring His Family's English Castle. Downton Shabby, of course, wasn't the real Downton Abbey. Um, and today we're bringing those two worlds together, the worlds of Downton Abbey and Carmen*, with a new book, the Earl and the Pharaoh, from the real Downton Abbey to the discovery of Tutankhamen. Um, And it's written by a lady called the Countess of Carnarvon, Lady Carnarvon, who is joining us from her chilly castle, um, High Clare Castle, where her family have lived for many generations. Countess, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for asking me onto your show.
0: I had to say, I love your, uh, for people watching, uh, the Countess has a magnificent pair of orange glasses. <laughs> bought from, uh, I think, from Amazon. Yes, right.
1: 10. Three pairs for $12 or something like that. Pretty good.
0: Well, they make you look very much of a Countess. Um, tell me about this new book, Uh you, um, you're already a best-selling writer. Many people will be familiar with your book, Seasons at Leclerc, Gardening, Growing and Cooking Through the Year at the Real Downton Abbey. Uh, this book brings together two worlds, uh, the world of Downton Abbey and the world of Tutankhamen. It's quite an unusual combination.
1: Well, 100 years ago, um, there was the first global media event when the 5th Earl of Carnarvon with his colleague Howard Carter discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. So I'm not sure whether it would ever have been discovered without Lord Carnarvon. And yet, whilst he was a celebrity for the following six months of his life, he then died. And over the succeeding decades was entirely forgotten. In some ways, just the same as Tutankhamun was a gilded youth of his time. But with the succeeding dynasties, led by the Ramesses, was again entirely forgotten. So in some ways that's why his tomb survived. So it's been a wonderful project for any author looking for the story, the story of an extraordinary man, never yet written from all the archives and letters. And yet his legacy was one which we've all enjoyed. you know it's inspired i think many young people older people to become egyptologists archaeologists lovers of history
0: so let, let's talk about your relative this is the connection to you george herbert the fifth earl of Carnaven. um is he your what your great-great-grandfather or your great-grandfather he
1: is my husband's great-grandfather so it's a great photograph that was taken in castle carter which is a house he built at the entrance to the Valley of the Kings for Howard Carter. He was an avid bookworm, book read. He read a huge amount and was very well read and he'd created a resume for himself in terms of his excavations and his detailed study work from 1906 until he eventually won the concession to excavate in the Valley of the Kings in 1914. And he worked there with Howard Carter through some years of the First World War, though they had to pause, obviously because of the First World War, and then on, and we were just about to give up in 1922 when they made the discovery. So how yeah, this
0: this great discovery? Um, so it's interesting on on Wikipedia, Lady Carnarvon, um, your or your husband's uh, relative. Um, Gets very much of a secondary role. They say in, in the twenty, the nineteen twenty-two discovery by Howard Carter of Tutankhamun's nearly intact tomb in excavations funded by Lord Carnarvon. What was their relationship? Uh, everybody, of course, remembers Howard Carter, the archaeologist who, uh, quote unquote, discovered uh, Tutankhamun in association with with, with Lord Carnarvon.
1: Well, at the time, it was, the excavation was led by Lord Carnarvon. Um, in 1972, there was a phenomenal exhibition here at the British Museum in London, and the first biographies of Howard Carter were written, one by Henry James and another by um, Winston. They are two great biographies and well worth reading, but nothing was yet written about Lord Carnarvon. So, again, he had faded for the background. He worked out in Egypt from 1906 for three months, so every year his wife had moved out there with him until 1922. And in 1909, he was introduced to Howard Carter by the director of antiquities, Gaston Maspero, and he, he employed Howard Carter and paid him a salary, which was fantastic for Carter because he's fallen on hard times. And suddenly he had a house, he had a salary, he had a fantastic new friend. And they were colleagues who thoroughly enjoyed the world of archeology. span They were both passionate about ancient Egypt and modern Egypt. And they both got on well with those they worked with and their teams and and it's a good story it's a good story on many different levels and of course it culminated in this extraordinary find
0: um let's talk a little bit about um uh, 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 about uh lord carnarvon's e- e- egyptology um he was a a, a, a a driver of cars he enjoyed cars in the early years and had a smash up and he didn't
1: in. have a smash-up when they said, that's all, most of it's entirely wrong. But... Um,
0: Wikipedia so actually, can be wrong, Lady that? So most
1: of the page you showed me is entirely wrong. So he went out to Egypt in 1906. He had a car accident in August 1909 on the way back from Constantinople. He was a keen car driver, one of the earliest motorists. He was a keen aviation pioneer, Geoffrey de Havilland. One of my heroes from aviation in this country of, of Britain made his first flight from Highclere in 1910. It was an extraordinary world Highclere with the technology involving some of the technology and innovation on which we all rely today. You know, you hop on a plane, perhaps Andrew to come over here or I to go to America. We drive cars, and all of that was in its infancy you know, when Lord Carnarvon was first driving his cars 120 years ago.
0: You know, in a way, I guess Lord Carnarvon's equivalent of an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos driving <laughs> around the world, finding stuff. But there is a difference, mm. Lady Carnarvon. Um, yeah. We know where uh, we know where Musk or Bezos made their money. What funded Carnarvon? Did he inherit a lot of money? I mean, it didn't work, did he? He didn't have a job.
1: Well, the the estates in the old days used to bring in money, and he worked with his, you know, estate manager to manage the the farmland, the tenancy, the woodlands. He had a colliery, um, and he had married a very wealthy heiress, just like in Downton Abbey. But she was an heiress in terms of cash. Um, her father was a man called Alfred De Rothschild, and mm. her dowry in today's terms. With some 50 million pounds in cash. So he um, thought whilst you should not marry for money, it might be unwise to marry without money. So it was a much more rich and complex world than is perhaps portrayed in retrospect, where we're full of, where we're fond of one-liners or things you can put on Twitter.
0: Yeah, I take that point. Um, but it, it does conform to some interpretation of the british upper class the aristocracy the ruling class who uh, married into money to maintain their estates is that how downton abbey the what you call the real downton abbey like H- high clear castle where downton abbey i think was filmed um is that um is that what maintained it did did he save high clear by making this good marriage financially good marriage
1: Probably, yes. And if if there's any reason we're still here, it's because of Almina Carnarvon. She was an extraordinary lady. And, you know, one of my chapters in the books considers their marriage and what love there was in it. And I think that's also a theme which is examined in Downton Abbey as well. You know, what is the relationship between Lord and Lady Grantham in that case? And that was something I wanted to consider as well. In some ways, what was so lucky was it was a good marriage and they did love each other and they were friends. And there's a lovely line from James Breasted, who's an extraordinary American Egyptologist who was staying here in about 1920, 21. And he wrote in a letter that he was, um, he found it very refreshing. To see how fond Lord and Lady Carnarvon were of each other. So it's some of those little little lines like that which help give you pointers. And also um, Lord Carnarvon's sister Winifred and her husband also made references and they were both in love with each other and he took a lot of time to buy her the most and make her the most beautiful jewellery which he didn't have to do. So he went to Boucheron in Paris and made the most beautiful set of necklaces and rings for his bride-to-be, designing them himself with much care and much love. So it's an interesting marriage. And again, I think we, we have various prejudices in today's world about what they did. It's, you know, For example, I begin the book with this young boy of eight years old who had gone to see his mum Give birth to his youngest, as it turned out, sister. He had an elder sister, a younger sister, and um, the baby sister was born. She was called Victoria, and her mother was, her godmother was Queen Victoria. So my character was eight years old, his elder sister nine, and younger sister four, and they were very excited. But sadly, two weeks after his baby sister was born, his mother died. So they returned from London to Highclere in a train with their mother in a coffin. She lay in state here in the library. And then they walked down to bury her behind her coffin in the little cemetery here. So that's where I start the book. And then what is interesting is his father more or less gave up much of his political career, he was a politician, to look after his family, to look after his children, to work out a way of creating a family life for them. So again, that goes against our current prejudices about the Victorian upbringing. It was not always like that in every family.
0: What is it, um, Lady Carnarvon, and and you're speaking from a position of expertise here, that intrigues the world, Britain, and and particularly America about the upper class, the aristocracy, the class you're from? You had a piece in the Daily Telegraph, a pro-monarchist newspaper in the United Kingdom, um, about how you were Nervous when Queen Elizabeth came to supper. I'm sure she was very nice. Why are we so we being uh, I have to admit, I'm not particularly intrigued, but generally people are intrigued by this. Family, of course, they're all in the news again, uh, more soap opera drama with Prince Harry, who one uh, English uh, website describes as the lost prince. What is it about your class that makes it so fascinating to so many people around the world?
1: I think it's a little bit different in today's world from how it was. I think it's much more about team effort now. And I think a stately home such as Highclere is one that is above all shared. So we're open to the public many throughout much of the year and people thoroughly enjoy their visits here. So it's a visible history. And I think these stately homes of England are visited by 80% of the tourists to this country. And it's, again, trying to make them relevant in today's world. And the team upstairs and downstairs, and it is a team, it's not upstairs and downstairs in the old-fashioned sense, is part of what makes it a family home. And the characters within, I think, our current team are slightly eccentric, full of enthusiasm. And I'm terribly grateful for their work with me as we try to keep it going, so I think it's slightly broader than that. I think the royal family is perhaps something apart, which tries to represent um, some of the heritage of this country and go out there to try to, with its the pomp and the circumstance, to create some sort of anchors. And you know, we're always looking back in history. So where do we come from? What's good about it? What's not so good about it? And if we understand that, perhaps we can go forward in a better fashion.
0: Do you have any children yourself?
1: I do. I have a son.
0: And um, how have you educated him about your family, your... I don't name. I
1: don't educate him or my stepchildren. It's up to them to learn to read, to go out in the world, to earn some money. This place doesn't give us any money. We try to help it earn yeah, you money. You have any
0: radiators. It it's freezing there, right?
1: It's about, I don't know, it was minus five last night. It's a bit warmer than that in here, which is about, minus five is about 25 degrees. I looked it up in um, Fahrenheit. So it's um, a little bit above that. And someone had nicked my radiators, which is not a good thing, because I need a radiator to take the yeah. edge off it. Uh, but you know what? It's fine. We've dressed for the weather here. And I grew up in a big, in a cold house in Cornwall with no heating. So, nah, plus, I change.
0: Do you actually live all, all the year round um, at Clear?
1: I spend most of my time here. It's, um, I think, particularly because of COVID, you know, like every other heritage and hospitality business, it's been a matter of survival, and you know, you you lead from the front, you lead from the trenches. We're all in it together. How can we help each other? How can we go forwards? And what have we learned from what we've all been through?
0: Speaking of the trenches, um, what was George Herbert? Was he in the First World War?
1: Um, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon was such an invalid he couldn't fight in World War One. No idea. He ended up, I'm going to help the Royal Flying Corps, and his son at 17 years old did set off and went out, in fact, to Indian Mesopotamia, Iraq, during World War I, and he was lucky. He managed to survive and come back. Meanwhile, this house was a hospital, and it welcomed, under the um, guidance of Lady Carnarvon, and it welcomed hundreds of injured soldiers you know, strangers, they were just somebody's husband, father, son. And Almina nursed them back to health. She had an operating theatre and she ended up running one of the best hospitals um, for the military, funded by herself during World War I. So it was an extraordinary testament. And it was the first book I wrote, Lady Almina and the Real Downton Abbey, which spent 60 weeks in the New York Times bestsellers list. So it's a tribute to Amina.
0: How was Lord Carnarvon and, uh, and Howard Carter, how were they received in Egypt?
1: They were both much liked, and luckily for me, in today's world, as it resonates well, Lord Carnarvon also, in 1920, asked all the founding fathers of Egypt, Saad Zagul, who was the first Prime Minister of Egypt when it became a republic after it ceased to be part of the British Protectorate in 1922, um, they all came to stay here. They were all made very welcome. And he got so they on came well. to Highclere? They did. They did. They all came and stayed here, and they've all signed my visitor's book here. And that was an amazing thing to find. He also knew them well in Cairo, and they would host him at dinners there. He had a huge amount of charm, and he was not a politician himself, which meant he was a, a conduit for each side to chat to each other as they moved from the British Protectorate into a republic. And Saad is definitely one of my heroes in how he managed that. And his wife and the wives of the other founding fathers led the marches through the streets to to achieve the Republic of Egypt. So yeah, it was good. When they and when they opened the shrine in February 23, Lord Carnarvon, the first people he thanked, were his risers, his foreman, the workmen, without whom he would not have he would not discover the tomb so again he he was well, a kind that was very of generous
0: life. of him did he participate physically in in any of this lord oh. Carnarvon?
1: what do you mean he was there all the time how, how can you not participate he was there at the digs every single day
0: there was a new story that some of the Tutankhamun artifacts have been are, are being returned to egypt um the Mask of Tutankhamun is still in, in London. Do you think that some of these... No, no,
1: the Mask of Tutankhamun is in um, Cairo. All the Tutankhamun artefacts found from the tomb stayed in Cairo, and that's what Lord Carnarvon wanted.
0: Oh, wow. So th- there's no uh, sort of Elgin Marbles narrative to the, the Tutankhamun stuff. It's still all in... Uh, no, in- oh, it's right.
1: all... He died, firstly, before anything could have been transferred. He was trans- He was busy trans curating, conserving, preserving. And then all the artefacts were being transferred up to Cairo for further conservation work and for display. The only in- people who lent items from Tutankhamun to show around the world which helped support their tourism business, are the Egyptians. That's it.
0: In our conversation with Colleen and John Darnell, they yeah. talked about, I'm not sure if you're familiar with their work, they talked about what we can learn, not just from Tutankhamun, but from his parents, uh, Akhenaten. Akhenaten and, and, and Nefertiti. Nefertiti. Oh.
1: Well, Nefertiti was probably his stepmother. His mother was probably a... Yeah, well, not, nothing's her. known for yeah. sure.
0: Do you... Did... Um, did, did Lord Carnarvon did the discovery of Tutankhamun? Did it resonate with him in terms of early twentieth century Britain? Um, did he did he did did he imagine all this in a contemporary sense? What did it mean to him the discovery of Tutankhamun? What did he think about it?
1: I think he was entirely overwhelmed by what he never expected to find, although he'd been hoping to find the tomb of Tutankhamun, but he never dreamt. Of the wonderful things that in fact he looked into when he and Howard Carter first knocked a hole through the limestone door and shone a candlelight through it, and then the torches. So I think it was entirely overwhelming. And part of the part of the reason he died was the stress of the press attention, the stress of the whole business, his is his his own invalidity he was an invalid for much of his life, although determined not to you know collapse before it and then he had sepsis and then pneumonia and um, he wrote to Wallace, Dr. Wallace Budge at the British Museum, and in one letter he said, "You know I'm hard put he was five foot ten to get my weight above nine stones. <laughs> you can see he was quite a spare framed man, and he did struggle. he'd had too many car crashes. And he was he was frequently ill. I think he was also an asthmatic as a child. But unfortunately, he took up smoking as well. So that really didn't help.
0: I mean, well, it seems like you and uh, George Herbert uh, and, I guess, Howard Carter, you all have one thing in common, a, a preoccupation with the past. Um, is that healthy, do you think, to always look back?
1: So I don't think I'm always looking back. I think if you cannot understand history and where you come from, if you don't understand what we've done in the past, how can you make better judgments about today? I like, I love the stories that, um, you know, people have lived here for 1200 years and I suspect been colder in the past than we are today. <laughs> you know, in William of Wickham's time in 1380, he used oaks cut from High clear to build New College Oxford, to build Winchester College. You know, the oak beams are still there. I think think the achievements of the past and the space and the buildings that have been shaped are extraordinary. I think we're fascinated with the magical past of ancient Egypt. I don't think, Andrew, anyone's going to remember this chat or anything else on my book, but anybody would still remember the pyramids. They can still see the pyramids i think sometimes it helps to see the visible history to touch it to be in there to be there so that's what i think history can offer and i think not without the background without those that sort of knowledge of what happened in 1866 when the american civil war ended and the dominion of canada was formed the following year if you don't know some of those things and the the focus on the 49th parallel at the time you you don't perhaps always understand where we are today as well as you might do i think we can learn from the people of the anti- of the interiors the native indians how best to care for the landscape and the wildlife. I I went to an exhibition in in, um, Omaha, Nebraska. It was an amazing exhibition, incredibly moving. And it reminded me of their strong connection with the earth, this beautiful world on which we live. And what can we learn from them? Not to learn, now that I think is a travesty.
0: It's curious that um, you're talking of course from United Kingdom, uh, which it's is awesome in, United, <laughs> yeah, sort of half United, not really United. Uh, exactly. Post Brexit, United Kingdom disaster. Yeah, so, yeah, some people might argue, perhaps people watching this or listening, that Britain is too preoccupied with the past that it's never figured out a way to grow up. And politicians made the, the remarks that Britain lost an empire and never figured out what it was going to be when. In, in a post-imperial world. Do you think there's, and this isn't a critique of your book or of, of Tutankhamun or anything like that, because they're obviously very interesting and important, but do you think there's too much preoccupation with the past in the United Kingdom and not enough about the future? Too many people visiting um, the real Downton Abbey, fetishizing an aristocracy that no longer exists and not figuring out what Britain's place is in the early 21st century?
1: I don't know what Britain's place is. I think we're figuring it out, and I think there's nothing wrong. You're not doing it
0: very well, are you? I mean, not you personally. I'm not necessarily
1: sure that it is being figured out very well. I'm someone who thinks our neighbours, Europe, should be our friends. You tend to trade, I think it's 60 or 70% of your trade is normally with your neighbours. Nothing's changed since Bronze Age, Iron Age, Roman, medieval times. You trade with your neighbours. It's better to make friends with them. So that's the first principle in my mind. But, you know, um, other people have different points of view. And at least in some sort of democracy, whether it's this side of the Atlantic or your side of the Atlantic, we can argue about it. In other countries, there is no argument because there's simply one dictator. So I don't necessarily think we have the answers. And I think we're all finding where the answers are. It's a very broken and fragile world. It's quite a frightening world and rather like post the first world war when everything was turned upside down. It is somewhat upside down today. And therefore I think Some of the stately homes, some of the museums, I don't know, some of the traditional occupations that we do or times of year, like Christmas, provide some sort of anchor and reference point. And if nothing else in this world, we need reference points and anchors and some sort of cultural coherence from which we can argue and make our way forward. But I think that is important and it actually does help us. So I will always stand up for that you know I love the musical world as well I think music and theater they provide again reference points so I am definitely guilty of bardolatry, as in a love of Shakespeare and I equally well love going to concerts it just helps me find a world apart and perhaps if you rest your brain a little bit and don't worry perhaps more answers might come the fifth well, earl loved opera. The yeah, let, earl let's end opera. with
0: the fifth earl. I mean, if we could bring him back to life now. If, a couple of final questions. What do you think he would think about the Britain of the 2020s? And, and, and what would he make of the history of Egypt between 1920 and 2020? It's been, again, a, a rather checkered, controversial history. Uh, what, what do you think he would make of our world?
1: I think he was a diplomat and that's how he tried to act during the 1920-22 to period within Egypt. It had fundamentally changed after World War One and I found that fascinating to write about, although I only just dipped into it. I think he never gave up, as Churchill said, so I don't think I'm one who will give up. So you keep on going and I think that's fair enough. And I think it's those many small acts of kindness for which many of his friends and family remembered him, that I think those are the things that matter today as much as they did then.